0: Je vous reconnais. Mobilette. Vous êtes le postier
1: Je
2: m'excuse. I can't believe it. Vous me prenez pour les Beatles Je ne suis pas un chanteuse disco.
3: to, which is all right.
1: <laughs> Usually the back of the uh, ribbon sounds more tinny than the front, I found.
3: That's a good observation, Rick. That's correct.
1: <laughs> I actually did vocals for a while with the back of a uh, Royer 121 mic. Nice. Apparently I felt that I needed even more treble in my voice. <laughs> right, yeah, I was thinking, hmm, it
3: was too warm. It is a little warm. That's all right. I'll go with it.
1: I actually betrayed the sm58 the other day and i used a 55s what's that that's like the elvis mic oh but yeah. a, a modern version of it it's not really so i think it's a 58 it's a beta in the shape of a 55 those are betas too they have the blue screen indicating that they're betas mine well mine is black i got the oh, uh, wow. matte black one it's <laughs> matte black is your car matte black too it's not but it Well, I'm sure in time. (laughs) A few dust storms. Sure. I think your levels are much quieter than ours.
3: Hello? Hello? Can you
1: hear me? Well, now you're talking louder. I'm turning up your volume. Mommy? Okay. I guess it's fine. Mommy. I'll check them now. Mommy? Hello. Mommy? I guess it's not my... It's no problem for me. It's just whoever's going to be editing this, they might have to go through and
3: turn up somebody's voice and tweak it. We have a hell of an editor. Welcome to the last canonical episode of Lost and Found and Rewound. I'm Chris Lost. I'm Found Jim. And I'm Rick Rewound. We are back in Rick and Jim's childhood home, hanging out with their mom and eating Leto's pizza. We started taping this podcast 26 months ago, (laughs) not knowing when to release it. Then a global event triggered us to get it out and finish it. We've watched and reviewed 21 films collectively. Really? And many more things individually. In addition to the global event, we've seen a regime change in our government. We've survived a political coup. We've lost many people too soon. Cathedrals and rainforests burned to the ground. Texas froze and flooded. And Rick's electronic car bricked out twice. (laughs) So quite a twenty-six months.
1: Yeah, I guess. But if you did a different twenty-six months, would it be any more? Uh,
3: Let's pick a random twenty-six months. Uh, Nineteen (laughs) thirty-eight. I was thinking around, you know, somewhere around two thousand one. Oh yeah, that's good too. (laughs) But then between that, actually, I think didn't the space shuttle explode too around nine eleven, or is that was before then? Which one? The one that, with the teacher in it. That was a long time ago. Yeah, that was... That was oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> not that one. Sorry, the one with, that didn't have the teacher. Yeah,
1: so the one that has the teacher in it, it's, it was really interesting because I, I got my passport stolen on the streets of Paris
2: uh-huh.
1: when we were on tour once, and then I had to go to the U.S. Embassy to get a new passport. They ask you questions to prove you're an American. So they'd ask things like, who won the World Series? And I, as a... Of course you knew
3: that. I was like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers sir now hand me my passport
1: <laughs> and then and then they asked, where were you when the, the when the space shuttle exploded I said, and i was like oh i was in a computer science course and someone ran in during the lecture and said the space shuttle just exploded that was the first one
3: i was at south campus in a, uh, in, in, in a, high school in yeah. a in a history
1: class yeah current yeah, events I, I was in north
3: campus in the Locker room. Is that what your Soviet handlers
1: told you to say
2: <laughs>
3: when you got the passport?
0: <laughs>
3: in what quadrant of Siberia was North Campus? I saw a WTTW sticker on a car today. It blew me away. I've been driving around in my own car in Chicago, which I haven't done in decades. Oh, I, I'm
1: sorry. I thought you were starting to quote
3: a Don Henley song. <laughs>
1: sorry, I had a weird. I tried to turn there. that
3: and you try to sing that, but it's really hard to say WTTW <laughs> lyrically. <Yeah. laughs> in honor of that, I watched Siskel and Ebert. What was that show at the movies? Was it at the movies? The old one on WTTW. Was it sneak previews? Yeah. So I watched one, sneak yeah. previews where they reviewed the film that Rick's about to give us the synopsis for. And I had forgotten about Sparky the Wonder Dog. Do you guys remember Sparky oh, the Wonder Dog?
2: No, I have forgotten about it, Well, it. I,
3: I remember because Ebert would talk about it, how he hated
1: hated Sparky the Wonder Dog. Oh, he did? Oh, oh yeah, that convention. <laughs> it, like
3: they would talk about a, a, a bad, bad movie, movie, Dog of the Week or something. Oh, yeah. And this was The Beast Within was the bad movie that week. <laughs> they loved this movie. You want to do a synopsis for us, Rick? A young French moped-driving postman
1: bootlegs the concert of an opera diva who refuses to allow her voice to be recorded. He also comes into possession of a cassette tape exposing a police chief's criminal activity. The postman is chased by Taiwanese record industry thugs and ice-pick-wielding New Wave cops through a primary-colored 1980s Paris.
3: That's an awesome
1: summary. I worked on it while I was watching the movie. So you guys are going to have to fill me in on what happened.
3: Before we get into the the body of the film, I had some questions about films that this film influenced and films that this film was influenced by. I just want to run them by you. In terms of films that were influenced by this film, The Limits of Control by Jarmusch,
2: have you seen this film? Oh, Oh, I haven't seen that one. I have, yeah. I could see that. It, I've only seen it once several years ago, but yeah, I could see that now, now that you say that.
3: It's a beautiful movie. It's just something to look at. Like this film mm-hmm. actually had a plot and characters and the limits of control yeah. was just very stoic. Boogie Nights. <laughs> That's interesting. Roller Girl.
2: Right. Roll, oh, oh, okay. She's on, yeah, oh, yeah, Skates. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Roller Skates, yeah. That could be a reference. I huh? uh, Ronin
1: Ronan. Uh, yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> That's a John Frankenheimer movie, though, yeah, right? Yeah,
2: it's one of those few good John Frankenheimer movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No,
1: he definitely made some great movies, and then a lot of not so great movies.
2: Is Frankenheimer the Chicago director?
3: No, no I'm mixing no. him up with the guy who did The Sorcerer and um, William Friedkin. Friedkin. That's what. All right. The last Mission Impossible movie clearly, oh. clearly stole the motorcycle chase scene. A couple of the motorcycle chase scenes, right out of this film, like the scene where he rides down the sidewalk of arches, that's right in the Mission Impossible movie. Hmm. And then that whole, when he gets into the circle and it's kind of that shot of him riding the bike around the circle in the chase just looks a lot like it.
1: Yeah, I don't know if anyone's ever said this, but I, I mean, I, I think it's I mean, both those movies, you could say that the city of Paris is a character itself.
3: <laughs> Has anybody ever said that about a city? I feel like I'm, I'm the one who kind of coined that. So then here here are my my last now do you think here's I think like we turn this into a hot seat segment. <laughs> do you think in its the last episode couldn't couldn't be a, a last episode without Rick's favorite segment? Was this film influenced by the what's happening episode where they bootlegged the Doobie <laughs> Brothers?
1: Ooh, wow.
3: <laughs> yes or no, Rick? no i i feel like it's it's
1: influenced by the conversation which to me is interesting because it's i'm I'm sorry to ruin your your great joke that was a great joke um but i i, I feel like it was like
3: 1978 versus 1981.
1: yeah yeah but i feel like it's 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 a weird reflective thing because the conversation obviously influenced by blow up and then sort of going back across the ocean although it's italy versus or you could say London versus Paris, but then it goes back across the ocean and then you've got this reflection where I, I feel like there are some Coppola moments. I think there, a few moments with the, the blue man and the, uh, the v- Vietnamese um, roller skating character. There are some aspects of Apocalypse Now there too. So I feel like there's some interesting feedback loop going on where you have some influence of American cinema that was influenced by european cinema you know kind of coming back
3: well, the female police officer looked a lot like somebody had a Dress to kill she mm. sort of had that style to her yeah i'm not going to give brian de palma any credit last question in terms of influences was this film inspired by the warriors <laughs> chase film 1977 i haven't seen it because my <laughs> my thought was this was just a warriors what's happening mashup wow man. Wait,
1: what year is the Warriors?
3: 1977. Really? Same year as Star Wars.
1: No. Yeah. I want a fact check. Where's the fact check? (laughs) I'm going to call a fact check on that one.
3: I'm going to look it up. I'll tell a story while you looked it up. The other thing that resonated with me is maybe maybe that um, a friend of mine had a French foreign exchange student staying with her and we all went to the Dells, the Wisconsin Dells, to hang out on the beach and she gave me a watch. She had a crush on me and gave me a watch. It was a Swatch watch. Wow. And I th- thought that was touching when I saw her give that guy a watch in the movie today. Are you conflating your past history in
1: a John Hughes movie you saw? I mean, you basically just... What was that movie called? What's, what's the name of that John Hughes movie you just made up out of whole cloth? The Dells. The Dells, yeah. You remember John Hughes's The Dells? I've got 1979 on The Warriors. I mean, that timeline makes a lot more sense in context of... You're making my argument for me. The Long Run by the Eagles. (laughs) You know, the crossover. They re-recorded In the City. Oh, that's right. In the City is in from The Warriors, and then it's like, we can't agree on another song on this album. Oh, why don't we re-record Joe's song from
3: The Warriors for the long run? Great song. It is a great song. You can't find... A real version of the Warriors soundtrack, which really frustrates the hell out Mm. of me. Like the one with the actual songs from the movie in it. Like all the atmospheric stuff must have just been recorded from the movie. And the songs on the soundtrack are like sort of, they resemble it, but it's not the actual music. It's really frustrating because I love those songs. To go
1: back to your question about influences and everything like that. So the thing is, is this this director, I, I saw another one of his films, Betty Blue which I remember being slightly traumatic. I believe she pokes her own eye out. But I looked up the cinematographer for D.Va. That obviously is the person. So I, 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 I'm just going to randomly, well, Dangerous Liaisons, The Emerald Forest, so John Borman, Hope and Glory, those John Borman movies. Henry and June, River Runs Through It. <laughs> Interview with the Vampire, Coppola. There, right there, right? People oh, yeah. versus Larry Flint. Remember the Titans, Planet of the Apes. Uh, a couple of dim- yeah, Tim Burton films, which I will not name, because I refuse to acknowledge their existence.
3: The Planet of the Apes?
1: Another movie I I kind of don't want to acknowledge its existence. Everybody's forgotten about Planet of the Apes. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes, those Sherlock Holmes movies. The Nice Guys, which was actually a, a movie I kind of liked. Did you ever see that? Yeah, with... um. Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, right? Yeah, Shane Black and directed it. Yeah, I, 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 and and that's a beautiful movie. You know, it's kind of got that interesting. seventies like magazine yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah so the, and then the Fantastic Beast movies, which I have
3: no interest in. Now, some of those movies you listed had I'd call professional cinematography, but I this was sort of obscenely beautiful. This yeah. film, every shot, in fact. siskel's criticism of it was at one point he said the reflection i think it was the reflection of something in the wheel well or he thought it was a rearview mirror of a car i think it was the wheel well of the car he thought that was just like too many like beautiful shot gimmicks in the film but i was like fuck that it's just it's they went all they went for it every scene had something phenomenally beautiful in it it's like a
2: Fashion magazine, right? Like yeah. Vogue yeah, or something, <laughs> it
3: is all staged. You know, it's yeah. like every scene is going to, like you, it's kind of the contract you have with the cinematographer as you watch every scene. It's like every scene is going to be staged, and this one, there's going to be a video game, blood on a window, or you know, it's like every there's not going to be a scene without a phenomenal choice in how it was staged and shot. That was the joke
1: I made was it's like, oh, every yeah, every scene looks like a Pink Floyd record, but like hip- Hypnosis that the company and the photographer that was associated with hypnosis, which was the great album cover design thing. But then, yeah, I wrote down fashion photography, and I think that's what it is, is that idea. It's this very calculated and very (laughs) well-lit cinematic. But when I first saw this movie, I guess when it came out or when it was available on VHS in the early 80s, it looked like an incredible new movie, right? It looked like an 80s movie. And when I look at it now, all the shots are really slow movement. It's not that kind of fast we were talking about when we were talking about Paper House, right? The music video kind of fast-cutting, and it did have that visual beauty that, like, Ridley Scott and Michael Mann, those movies, it definitely has that same Mm -hmm. uh, view and feel, but it's... It took the time to develop the characters in between the scenes. But visually, it it was kind of a repudiation, right? We watched Gloria, right? And the the cinematography in that is very raw, cinema verite almost, right? The kind of news... Street. Street photography and this is all of a sudden you can see this is when the 80s begins right where it's like oh no we're gonna make the city look beautiful we're gonna make it look yeah everything's going to be calculated we're not going to use real light we're not going to use real well, well maybe we'll use real locations but we'll light them in these primary colored ways and and things like that and so yeah i think that was a huge shift it was kind of the end of that era of more kind of naturalistic filmmaking that we had in the 70s and and this this film to me when i saw it was just like wow it must have been one of the first movies of that era because i don't think maybe well thief came around out came out around that time yeah right it was just mm-hmm. really a sea change i think in and then the visuals
3: it, amelie's on the other end of that book end right yeah. like amelie's the extreme you know, when you can bring computers into right. saturation, color saturation, you just start to go to, I wrote masterful moments of color and contrast. And if you remember the scene where it's the blue sky against the brown trees, I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember that, but just like, it was so awesome. The contrast of the trees against the sky, mm-hmm. really, really well done. And so simply done too. Just okay. simple shots that look better than a painting. Mm-hmm. Really good stuff. Yeah, and it makes you realize that a lot of what kind of
1: passes for impressive visuals now is, you know, can be done in a very simple way with just, you know, really elegant lighting and thought about it and yeah, using color, which I feel like I've I've started seeing again. I think it's it's it does seem like that's things are flipping back towards that.
3: Well, those Ryan Gosling movies. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Neon Demon, but I'm assuming that's that would, But the guy who makes that movie, Drive, was yeah. one of them. Yeah. So I guess it ties into the 80s nostalgia, right? Right. And
1: so, yeah, it, it's kind of looping back around to that.
3: And then Man took it to the extreme with digital film.
2: But this had a, a plot It's <laughs> a very complicated plot that I totally got lost. <laughs> yeah, I wrote and down. I was like, I was following it for a long time and then i because it was a real yeah it was like a detective police drama kind of thing but with yeah with all this like you we were just talking about all the beautiful fashion magazine glossiness and it was very complicated and <laughs> kind of un- unbelievable of course but i have to watch it again just for that just to follow the plot writing down who knows what at what time and <laughs>
3: We were talking about improv before we started the podcast. There's a term in improv called putting a hat on a hat. The hat's funny enough. You don't need to put a hat on top of it. In this one, it's like, okay, the Taiwanese, you know, I don't know why the record label guys have to be the enemy, but anyway, the Taiwanese <laughs> record label guys are chasing him because they want the bootleg tape, but then double down on that Let's just also slip him. That was sort of the uh, one criticism I would say is like, in addition to having this sought after bootleg tape, he has to stumble across a dying prostitute who then gives him another tape, which uh, the chief of police or the chief of vice wants to kill him for. So he's got two tapes now yeah. and two people. It's a hat on a hat. It's They couldn't get the whole film to work without both of those chase the both of those motivations to get him when arguably they could have simplified the film by just picking one of the two well i i liked it i liked that because it makes that
1: ending well the resolution where the the man in blue you know with the tapes and the and the confusion over what recording is what and people not understanding that they that there are two different tapes and them thinking that the man in blue well the man in blue does have each tape yeah i lost that completely I like that and I yeah yeah, I wrote it was a film noir without explanation so there's you know the what is the I'm trying to remember there's the film noir where they actually the Humphrey Bogart one where they actually stop in the middle and he's talking to the police his police friend and they actually just go through the whole movie again in a conversation because it's gotten so convoluted that somebody <laughs> finally said, "You know what? We got to have a scene where you where Humphrey Bogart explains this all for the audience because no one's going to understand what's going on." It's it's the big sleep, right? I'm trying to remember Sorry. is the big sleep the one that has two different versions, one before the war ended and then after the war ended they reshot a bunch of stuff. Like Lauren Bacall, they didn't think Lauren Bacall was appealing enough and then they thought it was too confusing and so they added in a bunch of explanation and sometimes yeah. And so that's what I, I liked about it was instead of knowing who the man in blue really was, uh-huh. he's just this guy and he's obviously rich Oh, well, maybe he's rich. He's a
3: rich blue WAP as we were
1: right. as 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 he was called in the film labeled in the film. And there's no complex explanation why he's got this money or doesn't have money or why he's able to, you know, spend a night in a lighthouse and you know, it's just like, <laughs> oh
3: no, you know, you just have all these kind of vague characters. No no explanation why this. My assumption was he was the son, so he was an Italian, we should say, and he, he that that he was called a WAP by one of the characters. I'm not just pulling that out of my pocket and I am Italian, so I guess I'm so you can say that i can say i can be racist cuz i'm italian i took him to be a child of money okay so someone who hadn't worked a day in his life had his own loft with its beautiful water sculpture thing and his 10,000 piece puzzle that he does all day that's his work is sort of like Uh, designer girlfriend and designer living and then the lighthouse was one of their many properties and because remember the girlfriend has been there before this is my favorite view she says so i just saw him as a rich kid who was smart
2: it's almost like a member of like maybe a royal family right yeah Mm -hmm. i can see that I i think there's several members of royal families who would fit into that Especially the girlfriend that, you know, the, <laughs> recently. It's but Italian royal family? <laughs> no. There's but, no Italian royals
0: man <laughs> word. But that's no. what I like
1: about it. You know, there's yeah. like, so a lot of time in hard-boiled detective fiction, at least you have explanations of why people are this way and everything like that. You might have a mysterious person, but then it gets explained why they're mysterious. Yeah, they, they didn't fill in as much. <laughs> Not that, you, but you're right. Film noirs are always confusing. So it's like a film noir. But a little more impressionistic, I guess, is but what I liked it.
3: Limits of yeah. Control had that, too. It right. had a lot of like characters that were incredibly interesting but weren't explained. And then you just kind of figured it out or you didn't, and it didn't really matter because they were very, not authentic, but they, they definitely fit their place in the plot. So you just were like, I'll either figure that out or not, but I don't really care. I'm just watching this I'm just flipping through this fashion magazine, Uh, you know, it's the spy issue of the fashion magazine. Mm -hmm. That's the thing is about fashion photography,
1: right? Is you create these moments, right? And there'll be these models, but then there'll be like the accordion player in the background or something. Or I'm thinking of, for some reason, I'm going to like the Strange Days record cover, right? You know, where they had the circus people, the doors, right? (laughs) Not fashion photography, but it's that same idea where it's like...
2: Blow up, like Antonioni. That's the start of this. I definitely was like, oh, this is like Antonioni and blow up yeah the fashion stuff crazy which started in the 60s i think 50s fashion photography was very cool and straight ahead and yeah and then london 60s blow up stuff is gets crazy we're just you got to start doing avant-garde yeah just kind of surreal stuff i just want to see what the dress
1: looks like why is there a mime there kind of thing right you know it's like why are there mimes
3: (laughs) Or you imagine in a couture shoot, a woman sort of draped across a fainting couch as if she had just come from a social event and her hair's messed up and her pearls are loose. She's wearing this beautiful outfit. Uh You create the story in your head. And this guy was doing it while telling an actual story. (laughs) So, like, you could just kind of make up your own story as you went along. Yeah. Did I ever share with you guys the picture of me recreating a Pink Floyd album cover? I seen it. Yeah. 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 The handshake. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, found that was like the most exciting (laughs) moment. I was like, this looks so familiar. <laughs> I was like, this is, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then like I found the grate and then I went and looked at it and it was like the exact handshake moment. I was oh, like, wish you were here. Yeah. yeah, and that grate has since been replaced. Oh. So it was, when I took the picture, it was the original grate because it's a hand welded, unless they re-welded it and replaced it, <laughs> but it really looked like the original grate. And then when they redid the roads one day, I walked by and they had replaced the grate, and I was just wow. depressed. I was like, "How could you do that? That's a piece of history. <laughs> right, it should, exactly. should have been a plaque. I
1: should have gotten, gotten the like, grate."
2: Yeah, yeah. It's like, are you going to throw that away?
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this guy, you know, steals a steals a gown. You would be the guy
2: with a a grate <laughs> sitting in your bedroom, welding equipment in your trunk. He's like, cool. I. It's I. This is my great. What are you talking they about? They were throwing this away.
3: They were throwing this great away, <laughs> nice. and then on eBay, it's like, "Wish you were here." Great, five hundred thousand dollars. Literally, you probably could sell that yeah, for totally. a fortune because exactly. they
1: didn't even know what they had on their hands. What did what did uh, what's his name sweater go for a while ago? <laughs> Mister Rogers. Kurt Cobain's sweater went for an insane amount of money. <laughs> smells like Teen Spirit sweater.
3: You have a friend that owns a piece of Kurt Cobain's history and doesn't know what to do with it.
1: Oh, no, no, no. He sold it. I believe he, he sold it. He did it. Yeah, but I got to sing through it. <laughs> did you really? I, yeah, I got to sing yeah. through the Cobain RE20.
3: How much did that cost you? $500,000? <laughs> no, it
1: didn't cost any. It was it was in the package. How much did it cost you, Chris? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ouch. Ooh.
3: Oh, my. Um, I have a note here. Italian onions. I like the way the man in blue chopped onions. And Rick figured it out. We were trying to figure out why. I was like, this is just a device. A guy wearing a a snorkel mask and and snorkel while he's cooking. Why would you do that? And then he took it off and Rick's like, to chop the onions. I was like, that totally makes sense. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And he was talking lovingly about the baguette. And it reminded me that I I worked at a place where the director was a Belgian guy. This is, you know, in central Illinois. I saw him outside a grocery store and he's on a moped. He's like getting on his moped. And I'm like, hey, how are you doing? He's like, hi. He's got the helmet on, moped, and he's got two baguettes coming out of the back of his moped. (laughs) And he said, this is the only place in town that has a baguette that's tolerable. (laughs) <laughs> it was amazing. It was like, oh, even in central Illinois, like he's still finding a way to like... Live the life. Live the life. It was like it was like you can take... I know it's Belgium, but still, you know, you can take, take France
3: and Belgium. You can take the boy out of... Belgium, but you can't take the baguettes out of his bike, that old phrase. Yeah, oh, it was amazing. Oh, another chase in a train station with escalators. Third time. <laughs> yeah. At Gloria Carlito's way... Yeah, And then this film. I went to France. My friend's uh, girlfriend at the time found a misprint in the paper. It was like $280 round trip flight to France. And she got on the phone and made them honor it. So we all went to France for like <laughs> wow. three, 300 bucks round trip and stayed in hostels. We were broke. I mean, in, in college. I remember just like coveting my francs. And what I ate every day was like a very cheap ham bone baguette where they basically had the baguette a buttered the bread like he was doing in the film and then put the ham and cheese on it and the butter on the baguette is what does it that's yeah. what makes it magic and it's yeah.
2: so good so so good that's what the is it jacques pepin the tv chef guy on pbs it's some interview with him and that it was like what's your favorite food and he was like oh just Really good bread and really good butter, you know. <laughs> that was it, you know.
1: Well, it was that time we were on taking a flight tour from Europe, and he was on the airplane. Do you remember this? Yeah. And and it was his show, and he was like, he was yeah, taking slabs of butter and cooking sausage or you know cooking stuff with it, and then it was like just more and more butter, and then yeah, then he had the sausage that was like uh, cured in fat and lard yeah. or butter, right? You know, yeah. and it just sit in jars, and we were just like crying with laughter, and then he's like. And then a beautiful cup of coffee, and then he just took a big wad of butter and put it in the coffee, and it was just, it was just amazing. It was like, ah, oh, yeah,
3: butter. It's like I make popcorn with, <laughs> I bake it in, grapeseed oil with truffle, a little bit of truffle oil, and then I melt like an ass load of garlic butter and then pour it all over it. And
1: I have to admit, like last night, I ate a piece of eggless bread, uh, sprouted grain bread with fake cheese and fake butter. And it was I, delicious. It was, but it made me feel a little queasy.
3: <laughs> what, well, We ate Lito's pizza tonight, and uh, we, we tried the Rick today on the menu, which is uh, a pizza without cheese and all vegetables, no meat, just a hint of sauce, and it was uh, sort of like a, a, a veggie flatbread. I thought it was fantastic. What did you think of the Rick, Rick? I thought it was okay,
1: I mean, what really made it great was the onion rings. The onion rings
2: were good.
3: <laughs> they did help the flatbread.
2: Next, yeah, you should just next time order, like you did, the onion rings, but then just take the big paper bag and just dump it over the top of the pizza. pizza oh, that would yeah. be so good. Or just ask them to do that. Okay, right. could you cook the pizza like halfway through and then take some of your onion rings and dump them <laughs> on and then just cook another few more minutes? That would be good.
3: Not to call you out, Rick, but you made me order that yeah, pizza. Yeah, exactly. You were embarrassed to that order would be great. a cheeseless pizza, so yeah. I, I'm, if, I'm... if we
1: could get Chris to order it for me, because <laughs> it, it it's under his name, he's the one asking. If I don't have to ask and feel the wrath
3: of the pizza maker, I'll I'll eat it. I just don't want to order it. Which also feels a little bit like a Tom Sawyer way of getting me to pay for the pizza.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know what's fun, Chris, is like ordering the pizza. <laughs>
2: That's a Taskmaster. Long ways back when I started watching Taskmaster, there's an episode where they have to order a pizza by not saying anything. Any adjective that you would use to describe a pizza, they couldn't use. You can't say cheese. Yeah, or sauce or anything. anything. And yeah. they did it. Most of them got pretty close. Torturous, though. That was hard to watch. I'm very particular about
1: ordering, and I feel... <laughs> I get into arguments at drive throughs with my family because they're not being clear and... <laughs> You have to order exactly right or else you're going to get something wrong. Uh And then you have to stop and then you have to go into the restaurant, right? The restaurant, in quotes, the fast food joint, and get it corrected.
2: And you don't want to... cause
3: a scene? Is that
2: what you're saying, Rick? Yeah, exactly. Cause cause a scene.
3: Rick pulls the car aside, gets out of the car, runs... What are you, a moron? (laughs) I said extra mayo on this impossible Whopper, you motherfucker. (laughs)
0: Kansas City. Food wise, a city famous for its barbecue. But that's About to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up and coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco joint with a special guest. We share taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're going to love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town.
3: I have a friend named Matt, I have several, as Jim pointed out before the show, he, he doesn't really pay attention to which Matt it is, he just says Matt. They all kind of look the same, too. <laughs> he's like, if I say... You know
1: one Matt, you know them all.
3: He's like, I won't go wrong if I just say Matt. <laughs> 'Cause one if even if you're not saying it to the right one, another one will pop out behind him and be like, Yes, Jim? Oh, you must have meant me. But he goes into restaurants and say, You know what? Give me what you eat. Give me what you order. Exactly as you order it. You would hate that, Rick. Yeah. You'd have no control over it. But it works out for him. Yeah,
1: I, I don't like that type of familiarity. <laughs> that pretend familiarity. It's like they're just working. They don't they don't wanna Yeah, hear your life story. They don't want to have any kind of personal connection with you. They just want to serve you your food and get
3: get a nice tip. Which is interesting. I'll confess something. When I'm with you or with you and Rose or whatever, many times I don't drink, and I typically try to order with the same constraints. (laughs) And I do it just because I'm like, well, what a great opportunity to, to try something That I wouldn't normally try Mm
0: -hmm.
3: (laughs) So I use it as a way to You know Empathize
2: Yeah That's nice Expand your horizons Mm -hmm. Right Yeah Broaden your horizons I'll try what the freaks are having
1: (laughs) (laughs) These people are (laughs) weird What do they eat? (laughs) Normally I would eat a pork chop But I'll have what these freaks are having.
3: Hey, honey, could you, uh, when I'm done eating this shit, could you get me a whiskey, neat, and a big old steak? Thank
1: you. Here's a $20 bill. Get me a steak and a doggy bag. $20
3: steak. (laughs) Here's a $20 bill. I'll take a martini. I'll take three martinis. I actually drank a $27 martini once. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was worth it. It was really big too. I mean, it's about yeah. the size of a twenty-seven-dollar martini. <laughs> Better be at Del Friscos in New York. <laughs> Delicious twenty-seven-dollar martini. Whoa! How much you get for that one? <laughs> I hope at least get one twenty-seven-dollar martini for that endorsement. You get a coupon in the mail. Yeah. Well, you know all of our listeners that are going to now run out to Del Friscos <laughs> and get themselves a martini. We've got a listener. There, there was a listener that showed up in New York, right, in the
1: uh, the analytics. We definitely have a listener in New York. So as long as that, that one person goes there, then we get that little ping, and then the money rolls in.
3: And this is what I'll do. If there is a listener that goes to Del Frisco's and gets a $27 martini, you send me the receipt, and I will Venmo you the $27. Is that how that works? First, first come, first serve. Yeah, just one. Yeah, you're not going to pay for everybody.
1: Although that would be a great way to get a lot of listeners. There'd be like a be like a like, you know, it might be a way to get a couple hundred people if, if the word got out. Hey, there's a guy giving away free drinks. You just have to just have to send him a receipt. I guess that doesn't mean they'll listen to the podcast though.
3: They could just tell their friends. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Right. This is a one time offer. It's a one there's only one coupon. You're gonna get something in the mail like ten years from now. I'll pay it. Yeah, no, I know. That'd be amazing. A man of my word. I'll pay it. But of course, it'll be a receipt for a fifty dollar martini, yeah. right? And then you'll you'll only pay twenty seven dollars. I'll
3: give him a twenty seven dollar <laughs> credit against a fifty dollar martini. Or, you know, maybe if you're in Del Frisco's and you see me there, <laughs> I'll just buy it for you right there as we're standing there and we can enjoy a martini and talk. Chris is the sad guy in the corner of Del Frisco's. <laughs> you, you can't miss him. And look, in full disclosure, I prefer Sparks in New York if I was going to go to a steak restaurant. But a friend of mine loves Del Frisco's, so I take him there for his birthday every every year. So you'll see a sad guy wishing you were at Sparks <laughs> drinking a martini is probably twice the cost of the Sparks martini. But, you know, if you catch me at Sparks, I'll buy you two $13.50 martinis.
1: Wow, man. It's <laughs> getting complicated. It's almost as complicated as the plot of Diva. Mm-hmm. Did we actually say the name of the movie? We didn't. I don't, I don't think did. so. That's fine.
3: Yeah, by this point, they get figured out because it's the title of the it's show. show, yeah. <laughs> so 1981 film, 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, $1.5 million budget, opening weekend in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, a very cold reception in France. Mm. Uh, the U.S. loved it. Ebert gave it four stars. Ebert also praised the film's chase scene through the Paris Metro, writing that it deserves ranking with the all-time classics Raiders of the Lost Ark, The French Connection, and Bullet. Okay. Two out of three ain't bad.
1: Good job. Good job, Roger.
3: I actually don't think any of those three chase scenes are as good as many other chase scenes that I've seen. Name them. Warriors has got a great chase scene. eh? (laughs) Uh, Name Okay. To Live and Die in L.A. I think Freakin' was much better in that car chase scene mm. than in uh french connection
2: that's after this movie are you talking about
3: i'm just saying there's better chase scenes than oh, bullet okay. and yeah. french connection like
2: you said Ronin you brought up Ronin. definitely ronan Ronin, Ronin that,
3: great chase scene. those
2: are great car scenes
3: mission impossible films all have great chase scenes in them although those are cg enhanced so i don't know if they count baby driver opened with a great chase scene and then it got increasingly boring
1: I, I did enjoy that. And then seeing the making of that, too. and the
3: Oh, I haven't seen that.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and, and having... A, actually, I, I think I heard an interview with that cinematographer. There's a, a video that cinematographer talking about being strapped to the back of a vehicle. You know, <laughs> and also editing on set and playback. They They were doing a lot of real-time editing of those scenes to make sure they were right. Yeah, you'd have
3: to. I mean, yeah. I guess in defense of those older films, French Connection, Bullet, they were creating the language of car chases in those movies and in this film it's really not much of a chase scene but it's exhilarating for the brief amount of time that it's there and it's unique you know it's a guy on a moped riding upstairs and down uh escalators and into trains and yeah Mm -hmm. that was what was interesting about it yeah the novelty yeah definitely but yeah, there is that scene in the Warriors where the Turnbull ACs catch them hiding under the train tracks and come after them in the bus. I don't know if you remember that scene. They're like the skinhead gang. What? That's an ex- <laughs> sorry. It's an ex- exhilarating. Warriors. Scene. <laughs> I'll have to watch it again. Just Google YouTube. YouTube uh, Turnbull ACs. Oh no, yeah,
1: no Warriors is good. Warriors is a good movie. It's the kind of movie you, I could see you liking.
3: Yeah, okay. That's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for Rick's
1: comment. No, I love The Warriors. You know that. Oh, I didn't know that. No, I, I feel like we've talked about The Warriors before. Well, we've definitely talked about it because I keep bringing it <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I, I honestly do
3: like the movie. Oh, yeah, because we talked about The Driver. Oh, The Driver. Another film with excellent chase scenes. Yeah, yeah, some of the best. Box office total for this film was reported as 19.8 million. Wow! On a 1.5 million dollar budget, so a flop in France, failure in France, and then uh, U.S. saved it. You know, actually, <laughs> that's very apropos because we saved their ass in World War II, and now we <laughs> save their ass on this amazing film. So, to me, what I think about is it's it's classic
1: as like 16 year old me like loving this movie, and that's exactly right. It's like this is. What a sixteen-year-old's idea of what a foreign movie and what France is—you know—it it just like it definitely like French people would hate this movie. Whereas, like, if you were a teenage American, you'd just be like, "I've got to go to France. <laughs> I want to go to France." It's like a like an ad for France, you know. It's not—it has nothing to do with Paris or French cinema, right? It's—it's—it's it's, it's, yeah, too American.
3: Well, it's like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin worshiping all of these blues players over here that can't like buy themselves a meal because they're no one in their own country (laughs) gives a shit about their music right and then the british guys are just making a fortune off of them and coming over here and being like why is that guy sitting in a gas station playing guitar he's my hero why is muddy waters painting the ceiling shows you what the brits know i guess that's the lesson i wanted everybody (laughs) to take from (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know i just realized chris like i i got a little throwback of a text i i replied to your text about uh, valerie bertinelli throwing Eric clapton underneath the uh, under the bus just now no i well I, did you get my message my response <laughs> i never got it oh, okay yeah it told my phone told me this morning i think
3: that it it never sent i don't know why So you're down on Valerie for taking a shot. Valerie, (laughs) a friend of of my guest of the show, Michael McMillan, when I showed him that, he said, that's my girl, he and Valerie are tight. To me, it's
1: damning if Valerie Bertinelli goes public and calls you a dick. It's hard to
3: escape that. An Instagram has a thousand words or whatever it is because it's a picture of eric clapton obviously uncomfortably sitting a couple feet away from eddie van halen who's sitting close to valerie bertinelli and and back in who knows the 80s at some Mm -hmm. point and valerie writes like once a dick always a dick or something right (laughs) so clearly this you start to again you know to having a beautiful picture and then creating a story in your mind like a fashion magazine you're thinking oh eric clapton was a dick to eddie van halen in this moment and then if you know anything about clapton he was the most insecure guitarist in the history of like legendary guitarists because there's all those stories about him and Pete Townsend going to the movies together when Hendrix was invading London and just mm. blowing everybody's mind and then when Hendrix dies Pete Townsend's like and then we stopped going to the movies together and I feel like we were only doing it so basically they could talk shit on Jimi <laughs> Hendrix <laughs> it was like if there were ever two guitarists that should never criticize Jimi Hendrix it's those two yeah but then I, I watched a bunch of interviews, I don't know why, this weekend of Clapton talking about Hendrix because I was trying to find what, I thought that, I couldn't remember what movie that was from. It was one of the Hendrix documentaries. I couldn't find that clip where they tell that story, but I found countless clips of Clapton and Townsend talking about Hendrix and their relationship to him. And Townsend was like, well, I was kind of the showman, but I wasn't the musician. So I kind of had that connection to him. And he's like, well, Eric was the musician in the end. And then Clapton goes on to say, yeah, we connected because we were great musicians. I was like, well, you're kind of pushing that a little bit. I'm not sure people would put you in the same class with Jimi Hendrix. But I, I would encourage everybody to go listen to the, the guitar lick that plays after I get off on screaming guitars on Rock and Roll Heart. And that's basically my... Anti Eric. That makes my case. Okay. For okay. Eric Clapton is a bad guitarist. Closing arguments. Closing arguments. You Your please, Honor. Your Honor, will you please play at one minute and 22
2: seconds? Jim, should this film be lost? Oh, no. Of course not. This is a real. Well, it was great to watch this again because I probably only saw it once 30 plus years ago. It was great to see it again and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I need to watch it again. I've got to sort out the plot. I was too busy, you know. Just flipping through the, the fashion magazine, You're just watching the...
3: It's like the suitcases in... Um, What's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? Right. Just trying to follow the suitcases. You got to pay attention. You're so
2: busy feasting with your eyes, you weren't <laughs> able to feast with your, your mind. Uh, yeah, it was the whole two tapes thing. I got, I that totally sucked me in. I, I totally they got me with that. They, lo- I, lo- I got lost. I was like, oh wait. It wound up being three tapes, three. Yeah, yeah. that's true. It was, yeah, fake there's tape. a fake, fake tape.
3: How many suitcases were there? There are three. or there, there are three? three. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, that that's when it gets to three. That I can't handle that. Yeah. I can only handle two. It's a three card Monte. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a Classic. Yeah.
3: I was <laughs> just total sucker. Yeah. They just. Was this in your original twelve films when you when we picked our original twelve films to do for this?
1: I think I chose originally chose Chronicle of the Summer, which is super pretentious. So <laughs> and D.Va Diva's a much better choice because I hadn't seen it. I don't think I'd seen it since the eighties. So And Rick had the poster. I had the poster. What He's... happened to the
2: poster? It might be. I might have. I thought you <laughs> took it back. I, I feel like I did, but I don't know where it is. It's very possible that I have it. I thought you had taken it in high school. Rick had this poster, and it's it's a great poster. I just looking up. I didn't do much, too much research. I didn't watch the like the Siskel and Ebert review. I didn't want to watch any. I didn't watch any. Read any reviews or anything. So, but any picture that came up from the internet was not the poster like Rick had. It's a great poster. It's this blue, whatever those terms are. It's a full-size movie poster. Yeah, it's like the big, not the huge ones, but it's a big movie poster. You probably got for pretty cheap. You know, it's like you can buy those. Like they still, but but some of them are getting really expensive. It's like you go to these these sites. and they have like kind of obscure. You got to pay yeah fifty, sixty, seventy dollars for. So
1: I believe I bought it at. A Doctor Who convention. Yeah. Yeah. Nice.
3: That's of course where you'd buy That's it. That's
1: obviously like a transitional point in my life where I went to a Doctor Who convention. <laughs> and then what I came home with was a was a diva movie poster. You know, <laughs> the, the person selling movie posters. And it was like, oh, I want this. <laughs> I'm trying to find the uh, the Marquis quote I just heard, which was, if you don't have it, I guess I might have it. It was something like, you almost did a Bismarck key quote because he had taken one of the Beastie Boys records, but the way, and, and he was like, do you have my record? And he's like, well, if you don't have it, I might have it. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the same kind of wording where it was like, but no, I, this is. I, was, so you took it.
3: <laughs> but this is different. This is,
1: Jim is, yeah, this, it's a different situation. It's not, not that at all.
3: Well this is was an interesting pick because we've mixed a lot of music into this podcast and so this film was about music and I think it was actually about both the artistic side of music and sort of the indie or the punk rock side of music because it was a performer who refused to be recorded which is sort of it reminds me of maybe Ian and all the you know sort of the the rules that they've made up around you know, how they live and perform and and stuff like that. It seems like she had values and she wanted to stick to them and then the gift, the greatest gift that she received, and maybe this is the only thing you need to know about the plot, Jim. I think I just figured it out for me at least, is the greatest gift that boy who loved her could give her was the ability to continue to stick to her values. Because as much as as soon as that tape was out there, ready for the taking they had her. They had. They could completely destroy her value system. And by him giving it back to her, she regained control.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say give the gift of
3: giving her the opportunity to hear herself sing. Well, that too. That too. But then she made out with him during it, which seems kind of narcissistic <laughs> to me.
2: <laughs> um, plus, oh, plus, it would sound really bad. They're standing on the stage, and it's like an opera hall. And he's up in the sound booth. He's playing the tape back. And it's like would sound terrible. First of all, it's an opera, st- you know, that, what yeah. kind of sound system does an opera, yeah, I'm yeah. sure it's acoustically perfect, but they're not in the audience. So he's playing this off of some little crappy speakers that they use to reinforce.
3: Haven't you seen Stop Making Sense where he brings a boom box and sticks it on stage <laughs> and <laughs> presses play and it sounds like incredible stereophonic sound? <laughs> That's what an opera house would do.
2: But you're in the audience. See, she's standing on the stage oh, and yeah. everyone who's on been on a stage... It sounds horrible. That's the worst seat in the house it to is listen to a band, Yeah, you know? So she's sitting there listening to her. She's like, what? She should be like, this is what I sound like? <laughs> she's just, I'm never going to sing again, you know? I can't uh, hear the
1: bass. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a yeah, a more realistic response. <laughs> it made me think about, yeah, that idea of recording. And now, well, it made me sad that no one could make that choice, right? to have a pure live experience but an artist could decide you can only experience my music live which is a really interesting they're trying to do that with the uh, taking everybody's cell phones right, right? or
2: yeah impounding them yeah
1: yeah and but... so that's that's basically how you have to do it but like somebody who says i reject all of this artifice you know which is what the past 100 what 20 years of recorded music right it it is some form of artifice and commercial product and and they just say I'm only going to perform live and if you want to see my music you can only see it live and that that would be a really interesting counter to The current state of music, which is that, yeah, you have recorded music, but it's been devalued, and so there's no value to that anymore. I mean, people love the music that they hear that's recorded, but the artists don't get a lot out of it.
3: Well, it's a metaphor for how people can make money with music today: is you have to tour, you have to. The music is an advertisement for selling the performances, the jewelry, the perfume, yeah, you know, the merch. It's basically the money in the business now is not about running a record label. (laughs) (laughs) Right, <laughs> unfortunately right, right. yeah, it is about the merch and the performance performance yeah
1: so that is the future is live
3: right that's the only way for
1: musicians to make money yeah people can still gather in places together but, especially
2: after a pandemic yeah it might be a boom
3: yeah <laughs> i mean there is something to the power of being hit with the waves of sound live with the volume mm-hmm. and the power of it and the communal aspect. I mean, there's, it's yeah. undeniably a richer experience than watching a live video on YouTube.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Hopefully there's still that. Hopefully we can hold out hope for that experience always being coveted. Or at least there'll be a better virtual experience. Right. You'll just, they'll find a way to make the music vibrate through your fingertips and then we're all fucked
1: yeah that's that's what i always said is that ever since vr happened it's like the second that you can go to cbgb's in 1975 and see the ramones it's all over it's like why would you go see a new band if you could experience you know submerse yourself in that environment that's that's but it, we haven't gotten there yet I'm excited. I'm hoping I live long enough to actually have that experience because that would be really exciting.
3: Well, I watched that van documentary that uh, Dave Grohl... Is that his name? Grohl. Dave Grohl. Sorry. <laughs> Not Dave Grohl, the beer maker. <laughs> uh, Dave Grohl made about vans. I think it was Steven Tyler who was saying that there was a point in time where everybody who was over the wall at that point in time was playing arenas and can still play arenas. And everybody who hadn't made it over the wall by that point in time, we will never play an arena. Yeah. And because they were talking about Grohl, and like it was interesting, Grohl kind of got over the wall via Nirvana. He did it twice with Foo Fighters and Nirvana, but I'm like, what happens when all those bands die out? The ACDCs, the U2s, like, the arenas are going to start dying out like dead malls because <laughs> the only place you'll... Like Wilco and all these bands now have respectable followings but they're they can't fill an arena and so they'll you'll just the, the the mid-size venues will be like the new that's where the big bands go play yeah because yeah because after all the big bands die out you know i guess muse the one example i thought was muse got over the wall pretty late but other than that and like i thought about radiohead but they've been around
0: forever yeah
1: and they had yeah they had a huge major label Promotional machine behind them before they were able to kind of launch into an indie like environment.
3: They went in reverse order. Yeah. They started out on the major and worked their way to an indie. Yeah. Should this film be rewound, I'm going to watch it again. Was this the last time for you, Rick? I don't like this film. It <laughs> was a little reference.
1: Right. No, yeah, it's I great. I'm, I, I wish, I,
2: I don't understand why I haven't watched it since then. I definitely forgot about it until, yeah, you brought it up for this podcast. I was like, oh, of course. This is perfect for this podcast.
3: Well, also because I remember this box on the shelves of Showtime Video and was always tempted. Again, like Gloria, this was another box that always kind of looked at me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, I'm going to rent Gator. Because <laughs> you know, it was kind of actually over where Gator was for some reason. But, like, I always kind of went for the macho thing instead of, like diva or gloria but yeah, yeah i should have grabbed them it would have been amazing
1: to see these films in high school just kind of represented new wave in music in a way not obviously in film there was you know the french new wave had happened 30 years before or whatever yeah the design of that poster and the fact that the the big bald or shaved head guy with the sunglasses flea um, is uh is the the main is the largest image in the poster right like the main yeah. characters are kind of off yeah in the corner and stuff it's it's really interesting
3: french flea i like french to call flea. him french flea yeah
1: because he was in uh, what was he also in the city of lost children right and oh yeah he's much more strange looking now which is interesting to say but yeah he's <laughs> definitely a very uh, noticeable character actor yeah. in french films he might be anomaly is he anomaly He's in delicatessen. That okay? Oh, he is in He He's delicatessen. Uh, yeah.
2: When you started talking about him, it was like I was gonna say delicatessen. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. He's such a lovable character in that. He's like, but of course it's him. He's got the same scrunched up face. The color. So obviously
1: the primary colors are important visually, but I was trying to find out if there was a thematic element between blue and red Mm. and yellow. The police office is yellowy, but then the garage outside of his, the main character's room is yellow but then inside his room is blue and then the blue man is obviously blue the red you know he has the red jacket when he's not he's like on a yellow moped when he's a postman but then when he has his casual nighttime jacket on it's red and then he takes that red moped
3: and gets shot and puts blood all
1: over the walls yeah and so the red is the danger i guess obvious stuff and the yellow is the system And society, Mm -hmm. and then blue is
3: love, and I guess safety, maybe because those scenes with like the blue sky and the trees against it—I think was a it was a sort of a loving scene. So maybe there's scenes of safety and comfort, and not Mm -hmm. green. Green's not in
1: it, right? So there's a lot of red, yellow, and blue, but I can't think of any strong green. But there might be—I'd have Mm -hmm. to look back again. The
3: colors of the French flag. Red, yellow, and
1: blue. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. That's that's really deep, Chris. Great observation from the uh, the macho American. <laughs> well, well, you're looking at Gator. Yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's yeah, red, yellow, <laughs> blue, the French flag.
2: You know, I spent a good amount of time in France. We once did a whole tour with a French band for like almost a month, over a month, just only in France. So, you know, we were, what is that, embedded? We were embedded in France for a while. Yeah. The one thing I remember, the, uh, this is all, I'm pretty, well, it's probably common knowledge now, but you can buy them now. But it's the one guy who was like drinking coffee out of a big bowl. The one guy in the one <laughs> the other band, and it was like a white porcelain bowl. It was like, that's a lot of coffee. It was, like, it's like, a, it's a French thing, I think he said. It was like, and it is. It's like, you can buy them now. You can, it was like years later, it was like, they're probably a crate and barrel or something, but it's like French coffee bowl. And it's like, yeah, they drink coffee out of a big bowl in the morning there's no handle you just hold it and just drink this big bowl of coffee and then that's a thing <laughs> well it just th- that's what i think i saw a guy do that in this movie so yeah
1: oh yeah definitely blue guy right blue guy was drinking or no no the moped the guy who had the red
2: moped yeah right. Yeah. i think he was doing a whole bowl of coffee not as cool as the Gloria disposable cup, whatever. Not it didn't have the personal resonance, you know, from my childhood, like the Gloria scene.
3: But it did have the personal resonance of when you toured France. Yeah.
2: It was yeah. as an adult. It was like I witnessed a Frenchman drinking cereal bowl
1: full of coffee. You spend that much time in France and you're embarrassed at how fast you eat as an American. The tempo of eating in America seems like just a violent, inhuman process. If you spend enough time in France, it's like, oh, okay, this is how humans are supposed to eat.
3: <laughs> My favorite restaurant in the world is this French restaurant in the town that I live in. And it feels so natural to go in there and then three hours later be done. like, <laughs> And you didn't even notice. like, You were chatting it up, you were having a drink,
0: oh, yeah, several
3: cool. courses, and then... I've been there. That's a great yeah. place. Yeah. Days of Me. It's fantastic. Years ago,
1: Central Illinois, it wasn't quite in Champaign. It was, I can't remember what town outside of Champaign, a French yeah. chef had set up in a bowling alley. It's <laughs> like a real French chef. He had somehow moved. Maybe he was married to someone at the university and had just set up this. And then he moved to the, the big city of Champaign later and had a restaurant for a while, but it was always this mythical or not, yeah, just epic French restaurant in a bowling alley. In the middle of Illinois. (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, you know, just one little tiny moment when the, the Taiwanese record label thugs were talking on the phone in the car and they had to pan up to show the antenna because in 1981, you had to explain why a person was on a phone in a car again
3: a device for the shot like yeah. that's a like a phone in the car is a fashion <laughs> magazine device right I and mean, they could have just put them at a you know a street phone
1: there's <laughs> nothing cool in this shot yet
3: <laughs> radio phone yeah because that car did not have that antenna on it right. in the previous <laughs> shot True, sure, i didn't even think of that. And i hate to call that out but i was just like they stuck that on there yeah and there was
1: that totally artificial moment where the light was on inside the car to illuminate the Taiwanese record label thugs. And then it went out like while, during the scene. So it like showed them. So you could see, oh, there are those guys in the car watching from far away. But then the light went out. It he closed like,
3: the glove box. Oh, is that what? Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's what it was. It was like they
3: realized, oh, you left the dome light on. Oh. <laughs> That's something that bothers me about film is lights in cars. Yeah, especially when I see it nowadays. I'm like, have we not invented a way, a device to light people in a car other than just
1: sticking a light in the car? watching the, the 1980s Price is Right with my 12-year-old, it's almost like watching a horror film when the model drives the car out because they basically have a spotlight inside the car <laughs> and you see the model inside the car and it's just like garishly lit. And, and, and my kid is just like, oh my God, what's going on? Like, what is what is that? And it's like, oh, because, the, yeah, the camera's not pick, won't pick up the, the model in the car unless there's this huge spotlight shining up from the... Burning, burning yeah,
2: her thighs. Exactly, yeah.
1: I'm sure they were just like, it was like super hot and unbearable, like having that thing in there. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they would just show the car, but occasionally the car would roll out and they would be in the car. I don't think the car was actually driving, but yeah,
2: they always have this huge spotlight in there. (laughs) they would do that there was no health. yeah they they would be running yeah yeah, yeah no yeah i know so they did that i remember yeah. seeing some show where they're talking about that in retrospect just like oh yeah we drove the car in and it was like exhaust and <laughs> it was something like a game show i had never noticed before but now now that
1: people on the internet have ruined it i never noticed uh, headrests in cars being removed in rear view mirrors is like once you know that they do that all the time in movies and tv shows it's like like just mm-hmm. watch any car scene in a tv show and then you'll notice the headrests especially well if someone's in the the back seat headrests are gone and then the rear view mirror has gone and then maybe they're driving they show a shot from the other direction the the rear view mirror back and stuff like that it's just like <laughs> oh. oh yeah it's like once somebody pointed it out it's just like Ugh. now i can't watch tv anymore
3: i shot a scene with a rolls royce yeah, uh, we were debating whether or not there was a Rolls Royce in this film. There wasn't. It was a what was it? Well, there was a smash yeah, one, smash one. one, but yeah. there, that wasn't what he was driving around. The Citroen. Citroen. Yeah, yeah. we rented a Rolls Royce and we had a guy drive it down the street, and it was supposed to be a model, a female model driving the car but the guy who we rented the car from wouldn't let her drive it so he drove down if it
2: was a man i might consider it an ugly man i'll let an ugly man i'm sorry
1: like you you that guy over there he looks like he could drive a car she does not look like she could drive
3: a car and he clearly he had like the profile of alfred alfred hitchcock so we have to shoot this car coming down the street and he comes down the street and pulls into this alley and it's clearly like this Alfred Hitchcock-sized guy. And then the door opens, and this beautiful model pops out. Actually, the first thing is where she checks her checks her eyes in the rearview mirror and then gets out of the car. And I was like, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. So I had to frame by frame tint the windows black so that you couldn't see the guy in the car as it turned the corner. I did it sort of chintzily for the first draft of it. And then I had to go back and I was like, I can't let that stand. So I had to go back and cause I tried to use motion tracking and I was like, that's not working. So I had to just go rotoscope it frame by frame. <laughs>
1: Well, that's my favorite. I, I don't know if they fixed it in Blade Runner, but seeing that big, it's almost as if when Joanna Cassidy goes through the windows and then all of a sudden there's like a, a beefy guy with a mustache going through the windows, you right. know, in the, in the bra and the, the transparent raincoat, you know, it's like the, there's, there's a moment where, it, where she turns into a man that you can really see. And I don't know if they've ever digitally fixed that, but that's got to drive. I, I guess probably I enjoy it because Ridley Scott probably can't even watch that scene. He probably has to have someone else restore it or do the color correction on it every time they do a new version of Blade Runner because he's just like, I can't see the stuntman running through the window.
3: Yeah, that would be exhausting. I can empathize. I went back and rotoscoped that pet out of that car. You George lucas did. it. I George lucas And it. I've gone on record in this podcast saying that I really like the new scenes that they added to <laughs> A New Hope. You remember A New Hope, right? <laughs> Star Wars episode four, A New Hope. Four. Yeah. as it was always called. He's just trying to trigger me. Well, guys, I'm going to wrap this up because this microphone's really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> for the audience, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that Rick and then Rick encouraged his wife to make fun of me and my big microphone. Or maybe she just did that independently. I just can't see anybody making fun of this microphone. That's why I feel like it was intentional.
1: Not so much your microphone. It's just the fact that everyone else uses an SM58, a Beta 58, Every person we've talked to, guests on this podcast, they've all used the same microphone, and you use a different one. I think that's the problem.
3: Well, it's not a problem. It's a device. (laughs) And I decided to bring this microphone to Chicago so I could use it as a joke.
2: You'd fit right in on Diva. It's just like a, yeah, exactly. a fashion photo shoot. If
3: there was a podcast in Diva, they wouldn't be holding SM fifty eights, I guarantee that. <laughs> if they're gonna put a phone in a car with a radio than antenna I actually did a deep dive,
1: not to just dwell on prices right, but the Bob Barker microphone. <laughs> and I am seriously considering buying one.
2: Are they the same as the, as the Match Game PM ones, too? Yeah, match, I think yeah, so, yeah. I yeah. looked those up, too. Yeah, yeah, those are, yeah, they're they're collectible. They're hard yeah. to get cheap. They're German, I think. Are yeah, they, are they buyer, or are they, I can't remember. You can get it, like, in a case, but they're, like, a long... Car antenna with a ball on it? Yeah, that, yeah, like a magic wand. Yeah, mallet kind of looking, yeah. yeah. Yeah, magic wand. They weren't crazily expensive, but they're definitely collectible, just because they're all
1: TV... And what you realize is that the uh, people making the bids down on the floor, they have those microphones in the showcase showdown. They're using them in multiple places. It's just the fact that he's carrying it around that makes it much more obvious and Intriguing.
3: Uh-huh. It's like a podium mic, but he
0: just yeah. picked it up. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. <laughs> unlike like I think used them too. Yeah, and some I don't know if they had photos of them using them or on a or they used them as drumsticks. Yeah, <laughs> electronic drumsticks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they probably just hit hit the
1: microphone on a metal thing to uh-huh. make a drum sound.
3: Yeah, or on a drum. <laughs> on a drum. Yeah, <laughs> that's how they mic the drums. They don't mic the drums. <laughs> right, they... they mic the sticks. You just invented the greatest innovation to drum-miking of all time.
1: (laughs) There were great toy drumsticks that my kids had. They were super irritating, but the stick was the drum trigger, and it had a speaker in it, and you'd turn on, and you could choose the different sound, and when you hit the stick, it would make like a snare drum sound. So you could Mm -hmm. buy two of them, and you could have a kick drum and a snare drum sound (laughs) coming out of this little tiny, what, half an inch speaker on the (laughs) drumstick going, (laughs) Those are really amazing. That's awesome. i got to find those. All right. Yep.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Everybody uh, slowly slouched down in the chair. Tuck chairs. me in. I'm going to go sleep here. <laughs> just put a blankie on yeah. Rick and he's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I'll sleep in this chair. i prepared some closing remarks because it's our last show. And I thought about a big sappy speech, but I settled on these brief lessons that I learned throughout the course of the show. One, The Cat from Outer Space is the only film everyone in the world can agree is good. <laughs> Yes, check Number two, the only thing to fear is children of the stones (laughs) (laughs) Check And then uh, Peng Su should be honored and worshipped Well, he already
1: is (laughs) (laughs) Should be, indicates there's some some kind of Mm. You're
3: way behind You haven't gone over the wall (laughs) (laughs) I'm on the other side of the wall Yeah that's why you guys would be playing arenas with Peng Su <laughs> <laughs> as Peng Su's backup band.
0: <laughs>
3: all right, so I'll I'll wrap up by saying uh, I love you, Rick. I love you, Jim. I love you, Rick and Jim, <laughs> the third entity of the show. And I love all of you who joined us for this fun stint through this phase of our friendship. So uh, Jim will now utter our famous sign-off one last time. Go ahead, Jim.
2: <laughs> oh, man, I don't know.
3: Oh, I, I know what it is
1: i wrote it down it's from this film what do you think i am the beatles
2: that's right
3: (laughs) good night everybody (laughs) lost and found and rewound is fully funded by lost and found and rewound foundation funds lost and found and rewound does not use crowdfunding because our listeners have better things to do with their funding There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time.
0: In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.